2000 featured an incredible set of movies. You had The Legend of Bagger Vance. You had Men of Honor. You had The Boiler Room. You had Patriot. You had Castaway. You even had Road Trip. I mean, it was just a glut of really great movies. But of course, one of the greatest movies of that period was Gladiator. Why not? Swords, spears, everything. It was a wonderful movie with incredible actors like Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix, Connie Nielsen. It was just a movie of movies. And one of my favorite quotes from that movie, which I think is appropriate for right now, is the one that Commodus, the character played by Joaquin Phoenix, said in the end scene to Russell Crowe's Maximus. The general who became a slave, the slave who became a gladiator, the gladiator who defied an emperor. Striking story. But now the people want to know how the story ends. I'm not Joaquin Phoenix. I don't have his talent and his pacing and his just gravitas. So I don't do it justice. But the point is, not all stories have crystal clear, easy to understand endings. In reality, we don't have writers, we don't have producers, and we don't have directors that show us how a story arc must come to a conclusion that must be satisfying to the people who are watching or listening. Real life is sometimes anticlimactic, and sometimes the endings just don't have a clear moment in time. And regrettably, that's where we are right now, here in 2021, with the story of USA Crits and the American road racing Criterium scene. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. There are four controversies that are currently in American Criterium racing. The first controversy, of course, are the criminal charges that were leveled against Kevin Scott Morris, the former managing director of USA Crits, by the Georgia District Attorney's Office in 2008. That we can talk about a little bit more in detail because we do have some information about that. The second controversy, of course, are the allegations that are made by L.A. Sweat against Mr. Morris for unprofessional and inappropriate behavior. Those allegations were made on Instagram. And other than that initial post, we don't know much more about that. Nothing more publicly has been stated other than Mr. Morris has denied them in an interview with Cycling News. The third is the, the investigation that's happening right now with SafeSport. SafeSport suspended Mr. Morris in September of 2021 for allegations of misconduct. By design, SafeSport's proceedings are meant to be confidential and private. We do not have a connection between what was the allegation of misconduct, and reality. We simply cannot in any way, shape, or form connect one thing to the other right now. SafeSport may release findings of its investigation. It may not. And so, unfortunately, we don't really have anything to report about that. Other than that, he was suspended on September 14th. The last, of course, is what did USA Crits know and when did they know it regarding those criminal charges against Mr. Morris? That was a much more going concern three weeks ago when these allegations first became public. But since then, it's become clearer that USA Crits does not appear to be a going viable concern for 2022 and beyond. 
the website is all but shuttered and merely contains a statement saying that they had terminated Mr. Morris upon finding out of the news of these criminal allegations. The events that were a part of it, including Boise, Salt Lake City, and Tulsa Tough, all released statements saying that they no longer wanted to be a part of USA Crits. Legion of Los Angeles, one of the teams that was a USA Crits team in 2021, has also said that they no longer wish to be associated with USA Crits as a series and will not be participating. Teams that were not this year a part of it, like AE Volo and LA Sweat, have also said that they have no intention on participating in USA Crits events, which could regrettably be a huge blow to American Criterium Racing in 2022. Returning to Mr. Morris, we don't want to spend a lot of time talking about him anymore. We are all collectively moving on from this controversy. That being said, people have a right to know what did in fact happen, and the articles that have appeared in Cycling News, Cycling Tips, Velo News, and elsewhere have really left us with kind of a lot of questions, but not a lot of answers. That is regrettably the case here, because not a lot of paper exists on what happened with Mr. Morris and his criminal investigation. It's important to note that he does deny the allegations that have been made against him. He denied ever doing the things that he was indicted and accused of doing. And he will point out, as he did in his interview with Cycling News, that the case was dismissed. In Georgia, unfortunately, the case was not part of what we call ECF, or electronic case filing. The Georgia circuit courts, the trial courts in Georgia, did not have a system where you electronically filed all pleadings, indictments, etc., so that it was easy or is easy to access them externally. You would have to go to the courthouse or request from the courthouse paper copies of the documents, which costs quite a bit of money and also takes a lot of time to do. The criminal docket is available on the court website from Gwinnett County where the case was venued. And you can go there and you can see kind of the history of the case against Mr. Morris, starting with his indictment on 45 counts of the possession of child pornography. It's a shorthand. The title of the criminal statute is much longer, but it's a shorthand. That being said, you can see what happens from 2008 all the way to 2017 when the case against him was finally dismissed. If you look at articles from Cycling News, Velo News, Cycling Tips, the Gwinnett Daily Post, a lot of other publications that talked about it at the time, you would learn that this case had a tremendously long arc. This case took a really long time to evolve. You'll see a story of two different states, Virginia and Georgia, of two different computers, one a work computer, one a personal or computer at his house, multiple prosecutors, multiple defense attorneys. You will see a trip from the trial court to the Court of Appeals for Georgia, which is the opinion that has been circulating on the internet. That opinion is a appeal, an interlocutory appeal, meaning the appeal was taken before the trial was concluded. It is a due process challenge. Basically, the attorney for Mr. Morris was making the argument that there were procedural due process failings 
because he could not properly or his experts could not properly evaluate the evidence against him because taking possession of the material that was found on the computer at home would or could potentially have exposed the attorneys and the experts who were evaluating that to federal possession of child pornography charges. So they wanted to basically kick the entire case out of court for procedural reasons. That motion was denied by the trial court and also upheld on appeal, which would send it back down to the trial court for further proceedings, which could have included a trial, but never did. There was a petition for what we call a writ of certiorari on that motion to the Georgia Supreme Court, but that petition was denied. The Supreme Court in Georgia does not have to take every appeal that's presented to it. The majority of cases that are appealed probably never reach a decision from the Supreme Court just because time is a huge issue. Resources are a huge issue. The court just can't hear every case and controversy brought before it. Returning back to the trial court, what ends up happening is the subject of supposition and speculation. All we know is that in 2017, the prosecutor decided to dismiss the charges against Mr. Morris. We've attempted to reach out to one of the prosecutors who was involved at the time, did not receive a return call. We have spoken to others who were involved in the criminal investigation, but they weren't involved in the time that these decisions were made. So we are left with a lot of what ifs and maybes and could ofs. And that's not fact. And we don't want to report anything here that isn't a verifiable fact. So thus ends the story of the criminal indictment against Mr. Morris. Dismissed in 2017, no conviction for possession of child pornography. Again, Mr. Morris denies all these criminal charges against him. What I feel is the more pertinent and important question is what happens next? What happens next for American Criterion Racing? There are a variety of efforts, collectively among the teams and among the events, to go beyond where we are right now, to create an environment for 2022 and beyond, which is progressive, productive, allows teams, events, spectators, fans, all of us who are involved in it, to really champion American road racing, American criterium racing, and the entire sport. The thing here is that all these efforts are currently ongoing, and there is no clear singular path forward. These things take time. It is a process by which different events, different people, different parties, you know, vie for not the most perfect version of the future, but a better version of the future. And this is not 24-hour cable news. We do not have to fill column inches here. We do not have to fill time with speculation and hopes and wishes and dreams. We can fill time with reality and fact. And that's what our goal here is to do, is to fill this time with fact and reality. This is going to be a heavy, hard segue because we have an interview today with Spencer Movenzade of ButcherBox. And unfortunately, we have to lay this heavy burden on his shoulder of helping us move beyond where we were. It is unfortunate that 
my work life and real life requirements put us on hiatus during the course of all of these events that have taken place over the last three weeks. And we did record this interview right before I left to go uh, to trial myself. So there is a discussion in here about events that were part of USA Crits in 2021. Spencer and I have discussed this post hoc, meaning post allegations and revelations, and we agreed that it is a good thing for everybody to hear about his experiences during the course of 2021. And if there are incidental mentions of USA crits, it's not because we are collectively trying to say that everything that's happened in the last three weeks is okay and and gloss over that, but because it's a historic artifact of what happened this year. He raised USA crits. He raised Spartanburg and Birmingham and Winston-Salem. He won Winston-Salem day two, which was a normal, regular, criterium not associated with any specific series, and it's worth talking about. We cannot penalize him or any of the other athletes or any of the teams that participated in a series that happened this year because of things that happened in the lives of people who work with that series and promote that series. So we want to present this interview here with Spencer Movenzade because he is somebody that you should hear from. He's an exceptional human being on the bike and off the bike. And I hope that you enjoy this presentation and I hope that you enjoy learning more about him. And we can all collectively take a moment, pause, take a breath and move on and celebrate successes of people rather than failures of others. This show is brought to you by the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is the home for all of those shows, including Cyclocross Radio, The Grodio, Slow Ride Podcast, Nowhere Fast, and this one, Criterium Nation. Please go there, subscribe, become a member, and help financially support this show and all those other shows who are the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling media. We are this week sponsored and brought to you by Source Endurance, an endurance coaching company with a great set of coaches who are there to help you with all of your endurance needs, including coaching for events specific, gravel racing, criterium racing, nutrition services, all of it designed to make you a better version of the athlete that you are. Go to source-e.net to find out all about the services that they can provide. And when you find what you want, use the promo code CRITERIUMNATION, all one word, for $50 off your first month of coaching. This week, we also have a great new sponsor for the show. This show is brought to you by Manscaped. Manscaped is a men's grooming company that is the creator of products like the Lawnmower version 4.0. It's their brand new male grooming device. I've been using the Lawnmower version 4.0 for the last month now, and it is, in my opinion, a superb men's grooming device. It has helped keep me clean. It has helped keep me cooler in the uh, Florida heat where I was for 10 days. As guys talking about things like men's grooming and hair removal might not be the most comfortable topic in, in the world, but it's important. There is nothing wrong with wanting to look good and actually looking good. The version of myself when I was a teenager would be incredibly 
amused and laugh very hard when talking about a men's grooming device. But now the 40-year-old adult version of me is excited about it because I want to be the best version of myself. I try to eat correctly. I try to dress well. My kit in cycling is clean and fresh, and I'm so proud of the work that they did in making it look good. I like to keep my bikes clean and tidy so that when you see me going down the road, you're like, that guy cares about who he is and how he presents himself to the world. The same goes with men's grooming devices, and that's why the Lawnmower version 4.0 is now a critical part of my weekly, daily grooming regimen. For our listeners and supporters, we have a promo code where you can get 20% off the Lawnmower version 4.0 and free shipping worldwide. Go to manscaped.com when you find the device that you are looking for, like the Lawnmower version 4.0. Use the promo code Criterium Nation, all one word, for 20% off and free shipping. So, a lot of stuff, a elongated intro, but definitely well worth it. Now, we're going to turn to Spencer Movenzade of ButcherBox, and we are going to get an amazing palate cleanser. And we're doing that right now. Yeah, I'm Spencer Movenzade. I currently live in Durham, North Carolina, and I race for ButcherBox Cycling. And this might be the most Spencer Movenzade thing that I know of, but can you describe where you are currently sitting right now? Like what the room is that you're sitting in at Duke? Yeah, I'm fairly lucky because I do work at Duke and that Duke has a lot of resources that we as students and as faculty can use. And this is one of their resources. It's a studio booth that is surrounded by soundproof walls and a beautiful recording studio. So I was quite lucky I could record, uh, I guess I should say, reserve this for this moment. And the reason I joke about that being this most Spencer, the most Spencer Movenzade thing that I know of is you know, you and I have known each other now for a, almost around two years, and I have only ever known you to go the extra mile. Like in everything, you go the extra mile, your training, your schoolwork, your life in general. I mean, we went when we were both at the Butcher Box camp in 2020 to race the Tour of Murrieta. You raced the the men's one-two race. And then even though it was like a 90-minute drive or something between where we were staying and where the race was, you rode back home. So a 90-minute race wasn't enough for you or a 75-minute race wasn't enough for you. You had to add on 90 minutes worth of driving, bike riding, which included, I think, hopping somebody's fence at one point in time. I don't know how other people know that, but yes, <laughs> it did involve some, uh, let's say, interesting bike routes, but it was, we all did it. The whole team did it. So you're very kind, but it, everyone decided to do it together and it was, I'm glad we did. It was a lot of fun trying to ride back. Have you always been that person who goes the extra mile, who wants the extra credit, who 
gets an A and is like, wow, why didn't I get the A plus? Has that just always been your personality or is that something you've grown into? Well, I would say it's not even driven by the getting the A plus. It was more driven by learning for myself. And for example, in racing, making sure I can perform to whatever degree I feel I'm capable of, making sure I can prove to myself first that I can win one of these. If it's more of an internal motivation, for me at least, it allows me to, it pushes me to train harder to, in school, for example, yeah, make sure I understand what I got wrong or make sure I, if something's more interesting to me in a project, I will go all out on pursuing whatever that interest is and that might be beyond the requirement of the said project. But I don't think it's more of a, I want the A+. I kind of should have known this, but I didn't know this until I was at a trivia night about two months ago or a month ago in Cape Charles, Virginia on vacation. The question, the extra credit question was, what are the top 10 colleges and universities in the United States per U.S. News and World Report? And like a lot of people can nail like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Chicago, And then you start to go, oh, well, what's next? MIT. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Caltech. And then you get down to like six, seven, eight, nine. You're like, well, there's a lot of really great schools out there. Duke is in that list. That's one of those ones that you're just like, oh, wait, yeah, that makes perfect sense. For a lot of us, we just thought Duke was a really great basketball school, but it is also a really top quality university. What were you doing at Duke or still are doing at Duke as a student and faculty? Yeah, Duke is an amazing place. And I really do like it for the faculty that push me and the other students who are doing amazing things that also push me in what I'm doing, but also motivate me into the amazing things they are doing. One of the benefits of Duke is the rich collaboration between engineering, which is where I was studying in the School of Engineering, and the hospital, which is ultimately my interest to work in a hospital, hopefully as a doctor one day. The collaboration between both of those elements of Duke is massive. And so I would work with specifically a few professors, but uh, I'd work on projects that were between a physician and a professor on developing a device or some addressing some need in the hospital that affected patients and trying to make patient care a little better or make a routine quicker or doing something of that sort. And and Duke really allows allowed me to do that, which was it is an amazing thing to be at a school that has such a collaboration. What is your focus or primary interest when it comes to medicine? I know that you have collaborated with certain individuals for things that now are before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I don't know if the patent has actually been approved or not yet, but I know that you've been part of a team that has been developing different types of technology. Actually, this merges into cycling because in a way, sport, engineering, and medicine all converge right to where I want to work. And so I am at the moment interested in cardiology, though I recognize that may change. Part of improving care and cardiology itself, it's very data-driven, or there's a lot of technology to have for 
procedures for specializing care to whatever you need, be it uh, if you're getting an LVAD, so if your left ventricle, ventricle goes down and you need a left ventricular assist device, so in pretty much something to act as your left ventricle, or if you need some other supplementary care for taking blood pressure because you have an LVAD or, or whatever it is, right? So there's a lot of technology that can go into cardiology and that's what I'm interested in working in. So I'm interested in helping push that barrier for better care in cardiology. And this sort of merges into cycling because a lot of that is really how do people care for their bodies better? And cycling is a great way to do that. And especially on Butcher Box, the way food rolls it plays into this whole thing uh it, it's very complex and so all these elements merge together and hopefully the way i wish to practice medicine where are you in the process of of med school and taking those next steps yeah i've applied so i am waiting to hear back it is a big game of patience and uh, this is sort of the time period where you'll begin hearing back about interviews some people probably have some uh, schools may not even have started yet. And then this process goes until about February for most schools. And then you'll make your decision. And and I hope I get to start in August of 2022. That'll be great. You'll be joining a long list of incredibly talented bike racers who go through to different types of doctoral programs, you know, like Madison Kelly from CWA is currently in medical school in Phoenix. You've got somebody like Eric Marcotte, who is a doctor for chiropractics in Scottsdale, Dr. Stephen Vogel from Project Echelon. He is obviously a primary care physician, telemedicine specialist, you know, like there are a lot of great people who are a part of our community, who you are becoming a part of their community. I want to talk about this connection with ButcherBox because the way that I understand it is you grew up in the Boston area, which is where ButcherBox, the team, started to emerge from. You know, we've had Steve Cullen on the show, Dino Piscopanis, Stephen Ramirez. We've had the, the triumvirate of leaders from that organization. And the way that I started to understand it is that you were the guy that everybody saw on the rides or at the races who, even though you were still a junior, you were still young, you were riding and basically punching above your weight. Can you tell us your version of how you, you know, found Steve Cullen and Dino and Steven and the guys on Butcher Box? Yeah, that is correct. So I did, I grew up in the Boston area, a little north of Boston, and I knew a few of the members. I knew Ted, for example. He connected me with Dino and then eventually at a race connected me with Steve. And I am very fortunate to have been connected with them and brought into this sort of totally different level of racing or even just cycling that I thought was present when I was a junior. And I would just do these local races. I Again, where I grew up, Boston is a great cycling community. It has a big cycling community. I looked up to Sam, my t current teammate. Every single race we would do, I'd do the race before his or something, you know, the, the four or five, and I would see him take the win at any race in New England you could name. He's done it three or four times. I looked up to him and the other people on this team as one day it'd be cool to race at least alongside them. 
And then Steve brought me into this whole world that maybe it's possible to race with them, which was is pretty pretty amazing to say that I'm there. I mean, you've got guys like Connor Saley, John Harris, Alex McLaughlin, Sam Rosenholtz, who you were just talking about, people who have serious hardcore results. When was it during the course of your progression as a bike racer that you realized that you belonged right up alongside those those greats? It's actually funny because Steve would tell me this. So Steve would say, you know, Spencer, this is your course. You, you're going to win this one day. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And lo and behold, later that year, I would do it. And slowly over time, it built to better and better races and more and more results. And the entire time, it was Steve and really ButcherBox, the, everyone involved who was like, who kept telling me that, yeah, that's you one day. And I'd never quite, <laughs> and I, I couldn't, I didn't think they were telling the truth, to be honest. I thought it was this far-fetched thing. But with each race you do, you sort of bank this new knowledge or, and a lot of it is to thank people like Connor for teaching me what I do wrong in every single race, what I still do wrong. And it was slowly over time from their help that I at least top 10 at these races in 2018 and then all of a sudden took a win this year so I wouldn't say I thought it was a thing I could do at the very beginning but over time it evolved into something that I I deserve to be at the front of these races. Well let's talk about the team because you know obviously there have been two documentaries now about Butcher Box by Attack Pictures. One was from 2018. The other was from 2019. One kind of centered around the Gateway series and the the other centered around Tulsa Tough. And when you watch these documentaries, you see these guys like John and like Connor who've got these larger-than-life type personalities. And you are a very more contemplative person. You are a very lower key person than having guys like Connor and and John. How have you, how does that team mesh? Because you guys do it so beautifully. You're the 2019 USA Crits team champion. You are the runners up in 2018. And I think you were the runners up this year as well. So clearly you guys have chemistry. But it doesn't, it would, it, on paper, it doesn't seem like that would be the case, but you do. How does that all work? That's a good question. I think a lot of it comes down to, uh, to those who started the program and sort of those who are pushing the direction to where it is now. Yeah, we all have a similar desire when we get to the weekend. We all want to win. Quite frankly, that's it. And the points do follow from that goal. But we play off each other, I think, because we it's now been several years that we've been racing together and we all sort of know how each other race pretty darn well. I respect everyone who's on the team for what they have and I I think they all respect each other. We all do. So I think that's a large part of what allows us to just speak our mind when we're at the race, in the race, after, and know what each other's are, what we are all capable of to do it together and it ultimately works because 
we do work together in a race where if one person sort of dominated and it it overcame everybody else, that is not a good thing for the team. And as a team, we can perform the best together. And we all know that. So this was all set out from the very beginning of ButcherBox. And I think it still carries today. Let's talk about this year a little bit. Your results this year have been an indication of somebody who's just plain and simple gotten better over time. You know, the when you look at the first big races, so starting in June with Armed Forces here in Washington, D.C., Tulsa Tough, the Pro Crit Champs, Pro Road Champs, Boise, like those results show somebody who just came into his form as the season goes along because like at Crystal City, you finished 67th, which is in a, a more than acceptable finish because, you know, a large number of people didn't finish that race. But by the time you get to Salt Lake City, you're finishing in the top 10. You know, like there is this obvious progression forward. How did this year build for you? Because now, now at the end, there are top fives, there are podiums, there are wins. So like, where did you come from this year? If you look at the very beginning if you looked at what was going on during the race, it wasn't that it wasn't there. So the races at the latter half of the year happened to suit me well. And for that reason, you can give someone a better role on a team. Perhaps it just a breakaway suits the course or even everyone. You can feel how everyone's tired of the season, whereas I certainly was not. So it the latter half of the year suited me really well. And the beginning of the half of the year, if you look at, you know, I'm sure half my teammates have 67ths. And it's not that they're out of form. It's the way that we decided to race that race would have tanked me or another teammate at any other given race. And it's just the way that it we felt it suited us best to win as a team. And so I've been, I mean, the team put their trust in me on some of these ladder races and it worked out because they suited me. I felt good and we went for it. I put my trust or I put my trust in other riders on my team earlier in the season, like Connor who took crystal city. All of us hit the front when he was gone and did a fake chase and his gap grew from 10 seconds to 40 in a matter of laps. And that sort of in a way tanks your race. But it, we had complete trust in Connor to win from that because that is exactly what he does. And so I wouldn't say that 67th is, yeah, maybe I, I could have done better than that, but it is uh, not indicative of how we are as a team or how I've necessarily grown as the year progressed. I think it's sort of, it's more just how we've changed as a team to highlight different riders through the season. With ButcherBox, does does that 67th, and I don't want to like dwell on Crystal City, like it was one race, but like does that 67th for you kind of even matter given that Connor won? That's the exact point, right? So at Winston to let, you know, to set up a move that could go and then to see Connor and Oliver bridge and get into the move on Saturday 
the whole process of setting that up and tiring everyone and making sure that the selection is there for something to go from can very much be your whole race. And so, but, and that's the entire thing. If we have Connor who's up there and is going all out for the win, like at Crystal City, by gosh, it would suck if we had everyone 10th through 20th and no one up there to win versus if we had someone win and everyone tanked themselves out of the back. Like that would be a much more preferred result, I think, for us because we want to win. That is kind of a thesis on this show is that bike racing, when it comes down to crit racing and road racing in general, is a team sport. And that the goal is not to stack fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth place, but to get first place and who cares place at the end because like the win is is critical or getting the team is placed high up there as possible is critical is this is this more of steve cullen and and dino and steven or is that just the ethos of of the team Uh, so ultimately we do as a team we want to win now i think when you bring in usa crits points especially as the team competition you can add a layer of complexity where I cannot tank myself out the back, unlike at Crystal City, for example, where you could do that because there's no points on offer. But at a USA Crits race, you can't necessarily do that because you need four finishers. And so you still have to finish well. But ultimately, for some races, if you and you've seen it with Legion this year, if you want to win and you do a truly stellar lead out, those who are leading you out are going to finish in the top five. They drive you so far forward through that finish line that they themselves can sit up and post up for the win and take third. It's not always that that teammate is done. And USA Crits does add the complexity that they really, they can do it, but they can't necessarily just call it a day. They have to keep riding. One of the things that was very exciting, since we're talking about USA Crits, one of the things that was very exciting this year was that U25 competition on the men's side. And in the end, the final results, you know, Dalton Collins finishes third from Automatic Racing, you finish second, and Mike Hernandez from Best Buddies finishes first. The gap between you and Mike is not huge. The, the two of you finished within 300 points of each other, which when you have 2,100 points and 1,800 points, that's not as big of a margin as one might say when they say 300 points. But like to watch the two of you go through this season and to watch you mark each other and to go in different moves. I mean, at Athens, you were on his wheel. He was on your wheel. There was no separation between the two of you. You know, do you feel that that competition between you and and him made you a better rider this year? I mean, yeah, racing Mike, he is an incredible racer. And I appreciate all he's doing, especially off the bike. Yeah, to beat him on certain days or to go head to head with him, each race you do get better. And he's the one at the front, so naturally anyone who's racing them, I think he makes anybody better. Now, my goal was not to get that young rider's jersey at the beginning of the season. That's not what we set out to do. It sort of evolved into this might be a possibility, and then in the last race, we were still within one race 
of each other. Like we were within the points you could gain in one race. And so ultimately it would have been nice to take that, but the ultimate goal was still the team overall. And that's how we raced or how I raced pretty much this entire season to get wins and that and help with the team overall. Does the fact that there are four competitions happening within each USA crits race on top of the competition for who wins the specific race, make it a little bit complicated. Yeah. I was just going to actually say, so if you, when we get to talk about Winston, especially Saturday, which was the USA crits finals, and you can easily contrast that to Sunday, which was not a race for points, but it was on the same course with the same riders largely you can see the impact points have on the outcome of a race and how it unfolds. Well, tell us how how that impacts. Yeah, so Winston, maybe even of at Winston of all courses this year, this was a factor because it was the last one. But Winston day one, you had two teams, uh, ButcherBox and Best Buds. We were within one race of each other. So the the final team overall was decided... In essence, it could be decided based on how we performed at Winston. Then you had the same with the Best Young Riders jersey was within a race of each other. Laugh Leaders wasn't really, but Laugh Leaders podium was. Michael and I, we were pretty much tied. We were bouncing off each other all year for that. And then individual overall was all but sealed. But individual overall podium, Connor Malervy and I were essentially tied, leaving, leading straight into Winston. And so all of those, each individual competition added a new dynamic to the race where on day one, you could tell every time I went for something, Connor Malervy and all of Cliff Bar reacted, right? And that wasn't present on day two and that wouldn't be present without points because, and to be fair, Connor raced his race as perfectly as he could have. He just had to match me. And so they all supported him in doing that. And similar with Best Buds, yeah, the young rounder jersey was still, it was a larger gap than Connor and I had in the overall, but it was still, that gap was within a race of a reach. And so every time I would do something, Best Buddies would respond. And so it adds this big dynamic that on Sunday, was not present because you simply just wanted to win on Sunday and there was no need to get a lap, get first through the lap or get points five laps in. There was none of that. Which way do you like it? I mean, do you like the Sunday version of Winston-Salem where it's, hey, it like no points here. We're just trying to find out who the best is on this given day. Or do you like the additional... Uh, intellectual challenge that comes with doing these points because you and Connor Mullervy, you know, for fourth and third in the overall, you know, were separated by less than 40 points by the end of that race, you know, and Connor was separated by less than 200 or actually 205 points from Mike Hernandez. And, you know, when there's 250 points on the line, you know, for the win in that race, you can make up some pretty big distance. I mean, I like them both. I like racing. They both add a dynamic. I do think having such a series like this is extremely important for crit racing in the U.S. 
So I think having a series and a story to follow is a great thing. And uh, it does, to your point, add a level of complexity because, quite frankly, I did not anticipate as much, you know, I'll credit again to Connor for following me on absolutely everything. But yeah, I kind of wanted to get in the break on Saturday. And I simply, there was no way when you have two teams sort of so close in standings that don't want that to happen. It does add a much different dynamic to the race and another layer when you have to do a pre-race meeting what are else are we considering like what how how else might they race this and what is their individual goal for this race which clearly may not just be to win well let's talk in specific about three races that you did this year and i want to start chronologically with birmingham because i feel like birmingham was one of those races for you that it was kind of a big, big breakout moment for your results this year. You finished second at Birmingham behind Danny Summerhill. It was a two-up breakaway, if I recall correctly, that was decided on the last lap in a sprint. How did you find yourself there? Yeah, Birmingham was, it was the uh, one of the first, it's a hard race to get to for a lot of teams. And so it was sort of thinned down. And I race, at least the way I like to race is to make it hard to create the selection that I want at the front and then go from there. And that is exactly how I did this race. So you could see there were, I think, two big breaks of eight riders or so during the race. Ultimately, those both got brought back. But the amount of people who chased them those who were in those moves, if you work them over during the race, then at the end of the race, when I look at who's at the front, you know, when we're all back together with 10 to go, look at who's at the front and realize, oh, great, they are all the same people. They're all tired. That is sort of the selection at the front that you would look for to launch another move because you know everyone else has already used themselves a little bit. And so... When I went, Danny, I was hoping he would follow me only because I knew I could not do the 10 laps alone. And yeah, we oh, we hammered those last 10 laps. Coming into the last lap, I kind of had two cards I thought I could play. The The course had a slight hill on the backstretch, very slight, but it was there. And so I could go on the hill right and force Danny to the front and go right on the hill, which is I force him to the front and then wait for the end and go for the sprint. Now, I had heard that we had five seconds on the field, which not true. We had near 15. And so I think that might have that knowing that would have played a difference in how I raced the end. But the pressure of knowing we have a charging peloton behind us led me towards preferring the former option instead of doing this cat and mouse where we sit up and lose five to 10 seconds on the field, which we ultimately you would totally lose that if you did a cat and mouse game. And so, yeah, when Danny pulled off, he pulled off way wide and was looking to the left. And so I went and uh, 
he's a great, he is so strong. So he crawled his way back. I remember watching it and there was, there was a moment, there was a moment of time where you had that separation that you need in order for somebody who doesn't have as much fast twitch muscle as Danny Summerhill does to carry it to the end. And it was just like, it was a, a desperate, absolute desperate effort on your part to try to just maintain that small amount of advantage. But when you've got somebody who is as savvy and as experienced as Danny Summerhill is, you know, it's hard to imagine getting the better of him. When you walk away from that race, did you walk away from that race thinking, yeah, I did absolutely everything that I could possibly have done. And therefore I'm, you know, I am satisfied with my results. Or did you walk away from that race with like, okay, let's analyze this and see what I could have done better. Yeah. I, I mean, I analyzed it. I've watched it probably 10 times to be honest. And especially the last, I actually, I would say the whole race 10 times because I would watch the beginning of the race and see how active I was in the beginning. I tried to push some of the moves I was in in the beginning of the race, which may not have been as necessary as it was. And uh, in the end, yeah, I'll probably replay. I wish I waited and went for the sprint at the end. But I think with the information I had at the end, that was a decent call on my part. Danny is just a great, incredible sprinter and uh, knew exactly to get right on my wheel. Maybe I could have swerved a little bit to make it a little harder for him. But ultimately, um, I think I made the right call. Do you often watch game film? Oh, yeah. Is that a, is that a typical part? Yeah. I mean, I've watched... I watched Winston day one before we raced Winston day two. Do you think that puts you in kind of a rare position? I mean, do you think other guys who are in the Peloton are doing the same thing? I hope they are. I mean, I do it because so it's it is very difficult during the entire race to see the entire race clearly. I mean, Birmingham, I saw pretty clearly. But there were definitely things I missed, like the fact that Gibbons chased that second move down solo. You know, I did not know that. And there was pretty much no way I could have known that racing up at the front. Even the communication from a team would just say something like automatic is chasing. It may not say Gibbons is chasing or something. So there are things you miss when you are racing. And I think it's really important to rewatch and see what other perspectives you might see as you are, you know, following a different rider or watching the race over that you may have missed during the race and forced a bad call or whatever it may be. And then for Winston Day 2, for example, watching Winston Day 1 right before, you could see where, see certain dynamics that played out that I, again, missed and informed how I could race the next day. I do think it's important to rewatch races, maybe not 10 times like Birmingham, but hey. <laughs> Let's talk about Athens. This version of Athens, the course that they used this year, as opposed to the course that they've used in, in years past, was, I'm going to use the word brutal for a rider. I think there was about 77, 79 
maybe 80 people who started the race and the vast majority of people did not finish. You guys absolutely destroyed that field. And to the point where you were part of a breakaway that ended up lapping the field. And this is kind of the moment in time where I really started to see the Michael Hernandez, Spencer Movenzade duel really come into existence because the two of you matched each other so well in that race. Can you walk us through getting into that decisive breakaway in that race? Actually, it draws parallels to how we might discuss Winston. The hill, especially corner three this year, it was a pinch point. And so it was important to see the front of the field go through that corner when you're taking it. And so I did, as pretty much all of us on Butcher Box, we all tried to stay up and race the front of that race because we knew that was a pinch point and that that hill will zap your legs. It is, in many ways, a VO2 effort up it every minute. And so that wears down people for sure. And any move that had the best buddies in Legion, we wanted to be a part. And so the more serious ones that went that were about 15 minutes in, which is classic Athens, 15 minutes in, uh, were the ones that we wanted to be a part of. And I went with it. And then from there, you can sort of see how I, you race the front to wait for, you know, who you feel is ready to be in a break and you can feel how the race is developing. And then when you join something, you're more confident that it will be it. And that's what I did. I think it was, maybe it was Tyler Williams who started it. But ultimately you still feel it, that this is the selection. This is the people who are up there and ready versus these are the people who are not, or these are the people who are already tired. And that this certain formation is perfect for a break. And that's when I went. Because I mean, in the end, Tyler Williams wins. Danny Summerhill finishes second. You're in third place. Fourth place is the legendary Ty Magner. And in fifth place, Ruben Campagnoni from Best Buddies. That is an insanely powerful wide angle podium right there. Do you realize that you belong in that group? Is that something that those set of names, are you just like, yep, I'm comfortable being mentioned with those guys? I mean, it's still an honor to line up with them. So to line up with Ty, to uh, even, yeah, uh, Ruben, heck, he's the guy everyone feared or still probably fears like to line up with them is still an honor and to race and learn from them when they absolutely dust me in the sprint like Tyler did. Like, yeah, it is a really, it's a privilege to be able to do that. And so, yeah, in some ways I'm still, I'm just happy I can do it. Let's talk about that last day, the last race of the season for you, Winston-Salem day two. We'll run through the top five here just because I think it's impressive that this is the top five at the end of a long season. Your teammate, Oliver Flout, emerging from a broken ankle, I think it was, back at Boise when he fell, going to the airport, to the race, now all the way back to a top five. Quick note, let's give him more credit 
he buried himself on Saturday and was racing on a bike that did not fit him and still did that. Oliver is a heck of a bike racer. Do you feel that you guys lost a step when he got hurt? Oh, when he wasn't part of those races? Yeah. I mean, Oliver is like he's a just even a great road captain. The very first race I did with him, we had a near hour long chat after practically about the what went down and you learned so much from him. So, yeah, he's a very key por- uh, person for us. So fourth place, Taylor Warren, CS Velo, Ruben again in third place. In second place was Wolfgang Brandl from Team Skyline, a former world tour rider with Movistar, and you taking the win. This was a breakaway. This was a breakaway that you timed it just perfectly right because beating Wolfgang in a sprint is something that very few people could do this year. You did it. I've seen the video. It's great. I've seen the the finish line picture. Pat. Daly and I both agree we need to have some time for you to practice posting up and getting your hands off the bars because you had a full bike length. (laughs) Okay, well, when you have 10 feet before the left turn after the finish, it's a little tough. (laughs) Okay, maybe there's extenuating circumstances. Tell us about the breakaway. How did you get that mix of guys together in a break? Yeah, like I said, I think, so day two raced more normal. And unlike day one, where you could see the front of the field refreshed very often, there was, uh, it was very, resets kept on happening. Whereas on day two, it did not. It was, uh, the, the field sort of stayed the same most of the day. And uh, like those who were at the front, and there were very few times that it just totally reset. Again, Winston with that course, you know, you got to give it, people can only stand 20 to 30 minutes of VO2. So you have to give it that time for people to fizzle out in their legs to just stop. And so that's exactly what happened. And right at, I think it was right at 30 minutes or 28 maybe that we went it was pretty classic, I would say, almost predictable. But it, it was a it was also a great recipe for who was there. We had two best buddies had two, and in that and then there were some other guys, just singles, that uh, made it work out so that the field was happy. The field was a little bit different from Saturday to Sunday. You know, obviously, automatic wasn't there in full force on Sunday like they were on Saturday. Uh, you had some other guys like Wolfgang, for example, who were not on D1 teams who came in to race on on Sunday. You're you're dealing with people that you're not 100% familiar with, but it's still the same course. Is this course the hardest course that you do during the year? Because that's, that's the rumor. Because of the hill, because of the way that it's structured, because it's so fast on the backside, is this course that hard? Am I allowed to give an answer? Because I'm biased. I'll say yes, just to prop up my victory. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you've got to market yourself. You've got to market yourself. <laughs> That's a good question. I would say uh, in terms of physically demanding, perhaps of the USA crit circuit, 
Yeah. I mean, Athens is longer. It is 30 minutes longer. And it did this year. It did have quite a hill. And Winston is maybe a steeper hill, but it's also a kind of two-part hill. And you have a longer stretch on the back half of the course. So that's a good question. I haven't looked at my comparison between Athens and Winston, so I, I couldn't necessarily say, but uh, it is a very difficult course, probably one of the hardest. So how did you get the win in this race? How did you separate yourself out from that group of guys on this challenging course? Yeah, I mean, I think I should go back to even the formation of the break because I think the way I said it, it sounded as if there was just an attack and people let it go. That's not how it was. It was very easy, again, because there were no points at play. And uh, it was very easy for me, at least, to just race at the front and make the selections I wanted. Just doing that, you tire people out because then you're in the front with, say, six people, and then you leave that to, say, three people. And then you leave that, and you keep doing that over and over, and it just wears down the field, and you can tell. Once we were in the break, it might have been... You know, you could tell who had tired legs up the climb uh, and who was slow in responding. I think it was with eight to go, we lost Travis. And then six to go, we lost Malervi. And then it was just five of us. And Oliver kept whacking it on the back, on the hill and trying to get away or, or especially just tire everybody. And yeah, nobody was responding. People were slow to respond or would look at each other like, okay, who's going to jump on Oliver this time? And then in the sprint, Ruben and I forget who was the, oh, I feel bad, uh, the CS Velo guy who took. Taylor. T- okay, so Taylor, yeah, um, they both went on the inside of Wolfgang and Oliver. So Oliver was leading it out, Wolfgang on his wheel. I was right behind him. And Ruben and Taylor went on the inside of each other and Wolfgang. And the media was like, okay, you're going to have to scrub break. There's no question. The the fence comes on in. And also the right side was the crappiest line. And so I just kept it wide, carried the momentum straight up to Wolfgang's wheel and went right past. But I do think part of the tired legs played a role because it was very much that kind of day where going up that hill would would zap you. Especially given that you had gone up that hill for 75 minutes the night before. Yeah. There was no, there was no new surprises for you. Yeah, actually, it's funny because I think we averaged a mile and a half faster on Saturday, or sorry, on Sunday. So it was, and, and people's responses after the race, they were saying Sunday was much harder. And so it definitely would kill your legs. And I mean, I happen to like when things go that way. <laughs> when things are brutally difficult and zap your legs, I'm a happy guy. <laughs> I think we call that type two fun. I'm not really sure who came up with that. We're nearing the end here, and I want to find out, since it is going to be October when this show comes out, you know, and you don't plan on starting medical school until August of 2022, you know, what is 2022 going to look like for you? 
ButcherBox has signed up again with its title sponsor, ButcherBox, for another year. Are you staying with ButcherBox moving forward? Are you looking at other options? Do you know what you want to do yet, or or is it still just way too soon? So all the conversations I will keep private, but I love racing, and it does connect with what I want to do in medicine. And I think racing, or at least riding, will always be a part of what I do. So next year, I am very excited for it. And I do hope that I get to expand beyond some of the crits. And I myself love TTs too. So this year was quite a learning experience trying to do TTs and dial in, say, the the position and whatnot. But Next year, I look forward to more of those if I can, and uh, hopefully more results, more more of the top step, because gosh, Winston was a good one. Well, excellent. That's a perfect place to end on here. Spencer, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, as always, to speak with you. Hopefully, we cross paths even this cross season. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Please go to WideAnglePodium.com to check out the full bevy, literal bevy of shows that are there. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. And special thanks to our guest, Spencer Movenzade of ButcherBox Cycling. We will be back next week with a show without me, but with Alan and Celine who interviewed Ama Ansek of Legion of Los Angeles after his win on the first night of Winston-Salem. So tune in here again next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation.